welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast, San Francisco State head coach Tony Schifano. Coach Schifano was named head coach in 2015. San Francisco State ended the 2019 season ranked 17th in the collegiate baseball poll and went to the CCAA tournament for the second year in a row, which was something the program hadn't done since 2004. Prior to San Francisco State, Coach Schifano was recruiting coordinator at his alma mater, UC Davis. The 2008 squad earned a bid to the NCAA Regionals and ended the year with the most wins at UC Davis in the Division I era. He also spent five seasons in the high school ranks at Los Gatos High School. Coach Schifano had a successful playing career at UC Davis where he's a Hall of Famer. His 1995 UC Davis squad competed at the Division II World Series. He signed with the Marlins out of UC Davis and played in multiple organizations getting up to AAA with the Astros in 2001. This episode is a deep dive into pressure offense. Coach Schifano gave a great talk during the virtual convention and we wanted to go more in depth on how to coach a pressure offense and also how to defend it. We also discussed recruiting, the disappointment of San Francisco State not having a season, and his best memories of spending time with Augie Garrido. Let's welcome Coach Fano to the podcast. Here with Tony Schifano, head coach at San Francisco State, UC Davis Hall of Famer, played professionally, got up to AAA, was recruiting coordinator at Davis for a while as well. Tony, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed our conversations, you know, since the virtual and, and you coming out here to film and then getting to interact with you during the virtual and the Q&A. So I, I've enjoyed our talks. You and I are kindred spirits when it comes to offense. Absolutely, man. I think we would uh, we'd work re- very well together in a yep. dugout. Yep. <laughs> Talk about your path a little bit for people that, that maybe don't know you. Yeah, I'll be quick. I, um, I, I played baseball at UC Davis. We were Division Two back then and I was a walk-on and just uh, it, was a, it was a blessing in disguise and uh, worked my way through that program, got bigger, stronger, and uh, eventually got an opportunity to sign with the uh, Florida Marlins at the time in 97. Uh, worked my way up through five different organizations to AAA, uh, played some big league spring training. And, you know, it was just a great experience for 10 years. Played some independent ball in the middle of that as well with some great experience in Shreveport. Um, and then uh, I, I, I walked away from the game at about 30 and began a high school uh, teaching career. 
and was helping out at a high school in the, the Bay Area of South Bay. And um, out of nowhere, UC Davis kind of called and was like, are you interested in getting your career going as a college coach? And I uh, wasn't, it wasn't in the plans at the time, but um, it's something I knew I wanted to be involved in baseball somewhere. And um, it was, I, it was a fantastic experience at UC Davis. I spent eight years there as an assistant coach, worked my way up to an associate head coach under uh, Matt Vaughn, the current head coach. And uh, then the opportunity came up to uh, at San Francisco State in 2015, I believe. So it's been about six years now as a head coach. And we've done some good things there. We've gotten the program um, to the point where we're knocking on the door of regionals and, and we, you know, we want to finish it. What about starting at the high school level helped you then when you transitioned to college? Absolutely. Um, gosh, I, uh, it was tough because I still had that baseball player mindset and um, I had to turn that off pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I, you get to the high school level and, you know, you, you, you get what you get. You can't recruit, you know, you, you know, you have these young guys that are um, very small, very young, uh, just learning the game, but they're eager and they want to get to the level that, that, my, the coach I worked with and myself got to. And um, so it was kind of a blessing to start down at that level and kind of the grassroots and just learning, um, you know, how to run a practice, how, what's, a, you know, to be, to be efficient um, little lessons that I didn't realize at the time were going to help me when I became a coach in college. Yeah. So, you know, you get to UC Davis, probably some comfort there going back to your alma mater, you know, how much did that help you? But also not starting there. I think that was hard for me is I, I played at Evansville and went right into coaching at Evansville. And so you had a little bit of a break there cause you were playing for a while. And so you didn't really know any of the players at UC Davis, but how, how much did that help you then going back to your alma mater? Yeah. Huge, huge help starting off my college career, uh, at, at my alma mater. I, you know, and I always say, I always said when I was there during recruiting visits or afterwards, how easy it was to show somebody in a family, the campus, because it was home. And it was, I mean, I, I truly was, I loved in my heart what I was showing them and I believed in it. And I always said to myself, to other coaches, like, if I go to another school, am I going to feel this the same way, you know, about, am I got the same passion about the campus and, and the university and, and, um, and you do, you, you feel it, but you know, your alma mater is, is that really, is that very special place that, uh, that all coaches hopefully have a chance to uh, experience. So how did San Francisco state happen then? Had you looked at other jobs besides there or did this just kind of fall on your lap? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, uh, two years prior, I interviewed at, a, at another division two school. Um, I won't name the school, but, uh, I bombed the interview. I went in there. I was, I was a final two, uh, the candidate or finalist. I, I fl they flew me in and, um, I came in with a book as thick as, as probably like 200 pages of my beliefs, my thoughts and my practice plans and how I was going to do everything and why I'm the greatest coach in the world and why I should be the guy for this job as a put. And, and that's funny. I, I didn't get the job. And I asked the athletic director afterwards, um, you know, can you give me some constructive criticism? I got thick skin. And she, uh, she said, are you sure? And I said, please. And she said, I was exhausted after your interview. And, <laughs> and you know, that's tough to hear, but, uh, but it was, it was a huge learning lesson. She, uh, I said, well, what do you mean? She said, well, you gave us all this information about you, but you never talked about the program and the kids, and how you're going to help the program grow. And, and I, I sat back and I'm just like, wow, that, what a, what a um, interesting you know point that she was making there. And so the next year, I interviewed at another school in the Northwest, and uh, 
I think I, I don't even think I brought anything with me. It was just myself and and I did I did all my research on the program and, and the players and and it was such an easier interview and I got offered the position at the airport before I left and um, UC Davis uh, countered and I ended up staying at Davis for an extra year and then SF State opened up that uh, that summer. We had a webinar a couple of weeks ago with Richard Cantor and 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 Tony and those guys. Those the, that's been a common theme with the interview process is, is make sure that you study up on the school that you're going to interview with. And they said that's been one of the pitfalls is coaches step in there and want to talk about themselves and what they're going to do and know nothing about the school itself and the players. And that's a great tip for anybody listening in that is in our profession is if you are interviewing at a place, make sure you do as much homework as you can on the school. And I think that helps you also because not every school that you look at as a coach is going to be a right fit for you as well. I know we want to move up and all that, but, but sometimes, you know, if you choose the wrong school to go work at that, that might bury you. If it's not a great fit for you, just like players, you have to choose the right school. That's going to be a fit for you. I think it's the same thing for coaches also. Absolutely. And you know, I use that same mindset when I'm interviewing assistant coaches, you know, I, if a young man a young guy comes in and, and he just is bragging about himself and, and I'll stop him and say, listen, I already know you're a good pitching coach or you wouldn't be sitting across from the table for me. Tell me how you're going to affect the lives of these young men that you're going to coach. Yeah. How have you been able to do that at San Francisco State? So taking what you did at Davis as a recruiting coordinator, how have you taken that into San Francisco State? Uh, yeah, absolutely. With regards to uh, bringing coaches in or with regards to players? With players. players. Players, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, eight years I built relationships with travel ball coaches and high school coaches. The thing I had to really uh, focus on at, at SS State the first two years was developing those relationships with the junior college coaches throughout the state and up and down the state. And because at Division II level uh, in California, it's heavy JC. And we weren't heavy JC at UC Davis. So developing those relationships, the trust, and it took a few years. Uh, Ryan, you know, you know, I had to prove to those JC coaches, SS State was a place to send guys and we were going to take care of their players and develop them and, and, you know, get them to the next level if we, if we, if they're so lucky and fortunate, but um, definitely uh, I, I leaned on a lot of the, the, uh, the coaches and the travel ball coaches that I had built relationships for eight years with. Yeah. Cause those guys are sending guys to JC's also. I mean, it's not like every travel kid is going to go play at a four-year school. They're going to send some guys to JC's as well. Absolutely. And, you know, and also I put a lot of trust in my assistant coaches, right? You know, I, I hired a, a young man uh, named Tyler Latore the first two years, and he's now at Sacramento State under Reggie Christensen. And, you know, they're doing a fantastic job um, in the whack there. And, and Latore really, really hit the pavement hard um, those first two years for me before he actually went to San Jose State for a couple of years after. And, and then um, Cameron Rollins come in, an assistant coach, the last two, three years. And he's really just he came from uh, the Pleasanton area where uh, a lot of good high schools, you know, Foothill and Danville area, and you know, the, the area down there. And um, he is, we have started to get some players from that area based on the relationships he developed over the years. Are you still heavily involved? Are you getting out and watching as much as you can? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm extremely heavily involved in the recruiting process. Um, I, I do trust my assistant coaches, but you know, I, I do believe that um, I need to get my eyes on the, on the, on the player beforehand. And, you know, with regards to, you know, 
I have a good feel for what um, I, I know what the scholarship money we have, you know, I, I'm able to foresee the future and the roster. And, and the bottom line is, um, you know, young uh, Cameron Rollins, a, a great young pitching coach. I know I'm not going to have Cameron for the next probably another three, four years because, you know, somebody's going to snag him. And so, you know, if he's not going to be here, I got to make sure I'm seeing the guy, the players that are going to be here the next three, four years. But, um, but uh, you know, we have, and, and it's, it's a comfort level too. Like Cameron and I will go out together and, you know, and, and we'll watch players and I'll, and I'll test them a little bit. And cause I want to develop his skills in recruiting and evaluating. How has it been not having a season? It's been um, the, the it's been the toughest year in my baseball life to be honest with you um the fall was i was the fall was okay you know the guys were dialed in with with the weights and the zooms and everything and then i think once february march hit and all their friends were playing playing competing and on twitter and instagram posting you know their games it, that's when it really got difficult especially for me weekends the first few weekends i actually i kind of zoned out turned my phone off didn't look at social media uh, but then i you know i i, I got over the pity <laughs> uh, party I was having for myself and and uh, and I started uh, watching game after game on the weekend because they're all live stream now and I'm watching my old monitor UC Davis I'm watching UCLA on the Pac-12 network I'm watching as many games as I can now and I'm actually I mute them and I I, I pretend I'm actually coaching the game offensively and uh, you know thinking what, what would I do in this situation things like that and sometimes I text some of those coaches I know really well and say, Hey, why didn't you bunt there? Why, <laughs> why, why did you, why did you hit a run? It was a perfect situation, but I'm sure they're sick of hearing from me, but yeah. So majority of roster. So what are they doing right now? The more majority of our roster. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, uh, we were really fortunate. So this is what happened to our roster, right? We, uh, when, when they announced it in November that the conference wasn't going to play, I lost three freshmen to junior colleges and I, I understood it that, you know, they, that they, they they figured they had the opportunity to play. Um, and then I had seven or eight seniors that had come back to play this year. They extended their graduation. So I sat all eight down and I said, you know, where do you want to go to play this spring? I'm going to help you get somewhere. So five of them left to go play around the country. We have uh, one of them is playing at UC San Diego, hitting three hole for them. Uh, one's catching every third game at UNLV. Uh, one's playing West Texas. They're all, they're scattered all over. Um, it's been fun to watch them. Um, it's hard at times thinking, God, those guys, we, what a roster we had for this season. But um, now the, 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 the rest of the team has stayed intact. The sophomores and juniors have, uh, have worked their tail off. They lift three times a week on Zooms. Uh, we, they're, they're all, they're all getting together at times in, in uh, hitting facilities and setting up cage work and bullpens. Uh, I've been, just just blown away by their resilience and even though i know how hard it is uh, for them this this spring well all those guys go out and play summer ball now yes 90 percent of our guys are gonna That's go awesome. play summer ball. yeah we got two guys in alaska five guys going to colorado and it's really interesting I, I just booked a flight to alaska for july uh those that colorado group is going to go play the other two guys in fairbanks so i'll be spending a week out watching seven of our guys i'm, I'm pretty fired up you gave a great talk for the virtual on pressure offense and let's get into it. How do you start implementing it um, with your team in the fall? 
yeah, it's right away. You know, it's something we do. Uh, we now, hey, is that part of the recruiting process for you too? I mean, you know, that's going to be part of your your offense. Is that part of the recruiting process for you? It is. I mean, when I'm identifying players, absolutely. And I'm very open with the players during the process. You know, the offensive guys, like this is what we do. Um, now, as we talked about after in the Q&A, like it, it, we don't bun every every opportunity, you know. We, yeah, exactly. We're looking for situations to put pressure on the defense. And um, and I, I just tell the guys during the recruiting process, listen, you're going to develop as a hitter here. We're really aggressive. We're a fastball mindset team. And we're trying to – and here's the numbers from the last few years. You know, we had 30 home runs this year. We had – you know, we led, we're second in the conference in doubles this year, this previous year. We're going to hit. But – you're gonna you're gonna probably be a better hitter because you're gonna learn how to how to bunt, how to handle the barrel, and put pressure on the defense. And you're gonna get in more fastball counts than you probably ever have. And you're you're a big dude. Like for people that don't know you, you're a physical human being. How much of the short game were you using in professional baseball for you personally? I was always looking for it. You know, um, you know, I knew that probably wasn't gonna get me to the big leagues. I wasn't a six six runner or anything like that. Um, I knew my thing was my glove um, and, you know, I, I, I controlled the barrel pretty well, but um, um, you know, third baseman's crept in quite a bit. You know, I wasn't, yeah, I, I wasn't as physical, I guess, uh, as, as a lot of the professional baseball players, but, but. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, you yeah. are in it. It's amazing how big they are. The, the, it, guy, it really the guys is. that make it the thunder in their arms. And it, it, it was, it blew me away, especially the Latin players coming in. I mean, they're so strong. And then you put them on the right nutritional diet and weight room regimen. I mean, they did, they take off, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I will tell you this, right. It was something, it was a part of my game that um, I think a lot of the, uh, the guys I played with say from the SEC or the ACC or the big East, you know, guys, I would uh, I remember we had a guy from South Florida or Florida Southern, uh, South Florida, I'm sorry, University of South Florida. He was an All-American and he came up to me after a game. He's like, God, we I don't think we butted once in my three years at university <laughs> or something like that. And I was like, yeah, no, we uh, it's part of our game. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So back. So how do you start? I mean, obviously you have guys coming in that expect that. So how do you impl start implementing it? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just that we, you get like, you get individuals, um, you know, you get the hours, the eight hours a week in the first uh, three to four weeks before the team stuff starts in October. So um, I do a lot in group work. You know, I, I don't want to do 12 to 15 guys cause you lose their attention. So I do a lot of two to three guys at a time. You know, we might spend, we'll, we'll do, we'll, get, we'll jump on the field. I think vi visualizing the bunt is extremely important. I mean, you go in a cage, you have no idea if it's foul or fair when you bunt it unless it's straight back to the L screen. So we, you know, we use the cones, we use targets, we have competition and, you know, it's interesting. You get the six foot four guys and you get them a little bunt competition. You know, the, you know, the, these guys are, these guys are uh, athletes. They want to win and they start realizing the importance of it. But the, the key, the, the biggest thing I, I, I think we've done in practice is when we enter squad, right. Uh, we start every half inning uh, with a short game um, uh, play. So for example, Say it's the top of the first, we'll, we'll go, okay, run on first, guys. Um, so the last hitter goes to first, and I'll put, you know, sack on. And uh, the pitcher has got three pitches to throw a strike, and, he, and the batter's got three pitches to put the bunt down. Okay, the defense runs a play, boom, clear the bases, start the inning. So at the most, the pitcher's throwing three extra pitches. And One of the things we would do, happen. too, is – 
everybody would have to get a bunt down, but then they would come back and hit. Um, that, yeah. That's kind of how we rewarded. And then if they didn't get it down, they had to stay at first base and they didn't get to hit. So that that's how we kind of incentivized yeah. getting their drag push and sacks down is if they executed it, they got to come back and hit. And if not, then they had to go run. Sure, sure. That, and that's what we did in college at UC Davis when I was a player. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what, Ryan, I look back at that. I remember guys getting upset because they weren't getting at bats. Cause I mean, I, I was a pretty good bunner and, and I would just kept coming back in the top of the order. <laughs> guy was, I'd have like eight at bats one day and the guy had three. <laughs> and with the small groups, that's how we did it too. So we, we laid it out for, for the Indies before team practice, we would touch on it. We would touch on it in the classroom. And then our five weeks of team practice, we would bring early work groups out for bunning, uh, slashing, pushing, but also base running off of that as well. And so of the five weeks that we had, you know, that first week we would start basic with, with sack, sack bunt, safety squeeze, and then st- leads and steals at first base. And then we would naturally, the next week, we, we'd go to drag and push. Then we'd go leads and steals at second and then at third base. So we kind of did both. But I, I agree with you on the early work piece with sh- small groups because yeah, you can get so much knocked out with the short game stuff, pressure offense, and then base running as well. Absolutely. And then, um, you know, we do a lot, obviously, during practice as well. We have a bunt, we call it bunt city. It's a little area off to the side and it's all chalked up and coned out. And I think what's really important that when you do that at practice is you have a coach over there. You know, a lot of, I think a lot of programs I'll see it when I, we go, we go play other teams and, you know, they're taking BP and they have a little bun area and, you know, some guys just flipping the ball in the air and it's just a little loop to it. And they're just laying the bunts down, kind of watching when's their next, when are they being called to hit, but you throw a coach in there and and you have the same regimen you do on the early work. Yeah. We stole that from Iowa Western. We, we used a mini hack uh, during BP with bunts, but then pitchers fielding uh, bunts off the the mini hack just to get them involved. Um, you know, I think that's the hard thing with what do you do with your pitchers. So we had we had stations set up for the pitchers also. So as a hitting group rotated, then our pitchers would rotate to either shag or charting or fielding bunts or shadow work in the bullpen just to keep the pitchers hopping around too. That's a great idea. I'm going to steal that, Ryan. And then, and also um, one thing we do with base running during uh, inner squads, I think has been really helpful is, is um, if they get thrown out, they go back. Yeah. Yep. That's and how we it, were at Evansville too. And I, I just, same thing. It just part. rewards, it right. rewards, you know, you're getting, giving them free to, freedom to fail and they know if they get thrown out, it's not going to hurt them. And then they just go back. Yeah. And they work on, you know, Hey, get another step here, you know, or read, you know, read this, this time. And all, all you're really losing is a pitch for the pitcher. You know, I know that the pitchers hate it because it's an extra out, but yeah. You know, and, and you did a good job with the virtual because you covered everything. You covered push, you covered drag, you covered slash, you covered sack, you know, and you and I talked about that. If you do that in practice every day, it helps you defensively as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, let, let's get into a little bit of the situational defensive side then too. How are you, how are you defending all of this? Yeah. You know, um, we have a couple teams in our conference that bump quite a bit. Uh, Chico state is just uh, over the years is, is always going to put a guy in scoring position, no matter where they're in the lineup. Um, you know, uh, 
so you know we had all the plays we had three or four different plays we had the crash play the fake crash pick backdoor pick and you know we kind of sat back as a coaching staff a few years ago ryan and and we we kind of decided let's let's be really good at maybe just two things you know let's minimize it you know let's be really good at getting it out okay and the reason being is what we tell our pitchers is we we believe in you you know if they want to give us a free out let's take it and because you're going to get the next two hitters out all right so let's let's just be as good as we can as a program at getting it out. All right. Now there's a situation where it's the eighth, ninth inning and we need to, you know, it's, it's first and second, nobody out and we're up two. okay, well, maybe we need to, you know, get a lead out here, backdoor guy at second. Um, we have a couple plays, you know, that to kind of, that we practice, but I think if you really focus in the fall and just getting it out and being excellent at it, you can, you can then work on a few extra um, crash plays and things like that. Yeah, the, the two that we added um, that we added later on because there were some teams in our league that were really good at safety squeezing. So we did add the crash in first and third with the first baseman where the first baseman's coming early to try to keep the guy at third base. And you and I talked about that. You know, then then does the guy steal at first? We never ran into issues because I don't think they had not worked on that because they had never seen a team crash. So we really didn't have to worry about the guy at first stealing. And the the what you saw is the bunner would pull back and then they would take it off. And just to have that in there. And the other one, first and third, was was hold. Was, you know, if you're up, if you're up a run or two late, uh, we would give a fist. And that meant that the pitcher wasn't gonna pick and the catcher wasn't gonna throw down. And if they tried to do something at first base, then the pitcher just stepped off and ran at the runner at third just so we weren't throwing the ball around. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, another good play to run off that crash play with the with the push is is a fake crash. So if you do say on, on Friday night you run the crash, right? Then on Sunday they wanna they want us they're in that same situation. You you get two hard steps by the first baseman and then come back and the pitcher picks because you know they've talked about it after the game on Friday hey if they crash we're going to steal here and so you know you can you can set things like that that up but um but those are things you have to talk about in practice and 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 um and uh and and actually perform do in practice set up the set up the situation because um you can you can say all you want from the dugout I'll tell you this one of the one of the things that upsets me the most (laughs) when I go watch games is coaches yelling from the dugout uh, why did we do that? Why, you know, well, I, I want to ask that coach so bad. Did you practice it? Were they prepared for it? Yeah. And if they weren't, then that's on you yeah. as a coach. You can't assume as a coach. And that's where you may have to take a mound visit. You know, I yeah. know we're trying to stay away from mound visits, but late in the game, especially just to make sure everybody's on the same page that, Hey, we may do this here. Or you're setting up a lot of things. You don't have to yell. Just go ahead and take your mound visit and try to get everybody on the same page for for what might happen. I think mound visits are critical, absolutely. And it's just a breather. Get the pitcher. Things are going a little faster. The pitcher, slow them down a little bit. You know, be a little bit light out there. Like, hey guys, let's. You know, I can't wait to get you back in the dugout. Get some. You know, so I can make you punt more. And then you know they're like, oh, coach, come on. <laughs> what about hit and run? Are you still implementing hit and run? Not as much. I, yeah. it's, it was a, it's such a, a skill, um, yeah. r- run and hit still, we would still use run and hit way more than, than hit and run. Um, 
just because it's two separate plays. The the runner at first base is trying to get a good steal jump, and then the hitter is trying to get a good pitch to, to waylay on. So we went way more to, to run and hit than we did yeah. hit and run later on. I'll hit and run first and third. I won't. I usually don't hit and run, runner on first only. Um, but, you know, if I got a guy at the plate that I'm a little concerned, there's a sinker guy on the mound, I'm a little concerned about double play to end the inning. I'll put a guy in motion. But I'll tell you where I started doing is um, – two strike hit and runs. And what it does is it shortens our guys up. Um, you know, it's that, that first and third one out situation. It's a one and two count. And, you know, guys are getting protect mode and, and they just kind of roll over something just to put the ball in play. And now it's the end of an inning double play. So what I'll do is I'll put the guy in motion and, and that guy has to, uh, has to protect and put the ball in play. And it's, it's usually a run and not a double play. Okay, say the runner swings through it. Does your runner at third have the option of stealing if he gets a clean read on it? Yes. So we go, we go, we, we call it, we call it green, uh, red light. So basically, I'll tell them before the pitch who's green, who's red. And basically, what green means is, you know, go obviously, and red is stop. So the runner at first is stealing. Uh, if it's a swing through, then he is in a red. So he will stop on the throwdown, and the guy in third is a green. Yeah. And that's a great that. piece. We we had to talk a lot about that with our runner at first base, first and third situation. We would delay quite a bit uh, in those situations. Not as much, you know, run and hit in that situation. We would delay more with two strikes because the catcher's going to probably sit in there. Yeah. Um, and But we had to talk a lot like, hey, you're going to take a long look in there, and if the throw is going to beat you, then you have to stop. So that's something we worked on with our runner at first base a lot. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and no, that's teaching the finer points of the game because you, how many times you see that guys in high school don't they don't have any feel for this because they haven't worked on it so you have to spend quite a bit of time on on that but those are things that win you games you know if you don't run into an out at second base and the guy scores then again that's those are the small things of baseball that that win you games we had back-to-back years at, at UC Davis where we won 30 plus games and didn't make a regional and we could have easily looked back at two or three games, Ryan, where it's just one run, some, and you can easily, we could have easily gone back to a base running mistake. And, you know, something as simple as, as, uh, you know, when, when, when you're on a hit and run, we teach if the ball's hit on a line, you keep running. Yep. Right. Where, uh, you know, don't stop because it's, you're going to be doubled up anyway. It's caught in the infield. So, you know, maybe we get lucky and it gets through, yep. but I remember one season we, you know, we teach that we talk about it all the time and, and unfortunately, a guy was was hit and run. He was stealing, and ball was hit a line drive at second, and he stopped and tried to get back. But the ball hit the guy's glove, trickled down the. Actually, went to the towards the right field line. He would have been first and third. And said we were first and second, and they got out of the inning. And you know, little things like that. You don't. You just. Oh, it's tough sometimes. How are you practicing elevation off the bat then um, with your runners? How are you doing that in practice where they can can get some reads off what a line drive is, what a fly ball is, what a ground ball is? How are you practicing other, those reads? During batting practice, it's it's the, it's the best time. It's, it's pretty much the only time because you get a mass number of reads. So we do have a base running group. And what we do is we don't we don't run them all around the bases. Every, you know, I see some teams, they go, all right, start off at first base, the first round, then second base. We're going to be really good that day at just reading from first base. And then the next day, we're going to go to second base, and you're, you're going to get about 15 to 20 reads. Yeah, so we, we do that quite a bit every day. Great tip. You know, early in the year, spe- coached it mostly cold weather, 
program, so you weren't out a lot. We tried to touch all the bases because we just weren't getting a, a ton of those reps outside uh, because we've been in the gym most of the preseason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd see that. Um, I, I, I do remember that when I was coaching UC Davis, you know, schools from the Northwest or some of the colder schools like Utah that were in, you know, they come out to play us early. And, you know, it was, some of the team, they were just a little bit rusty, you know, and I'd, go, I'd look at their records probably 20 games in and they were, you know, they were now 15 and five after losing their first five. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it, it takes reps, it takes repetition. How are you teaching then responsibilities at second base with the runner? So no outs, one out. What, how are you describing that for your base yeah. runners? Yeah. So we do a lot of, we do some drills with that um, live reads. Uh, one, you know, one thing is that, that we, we do a BID read. And I think it's really important when um, you get a free 90, you know, we'll take it all day, but, you know, we'll yell out the situations. Like, I, for example, I see a lot of program. I, you know, I, I go to practices, JC practices, things of that nature, and they're working on BIDs, but I never hear a coach yelling out the situation because the, the read is different. It, 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 we'll take second base, for example. If there's nobody out, okay, you can't make that first out of third. You're already in scoring position, and we're probably going to try to move you over at some point. So you got to be 100% that you're going to take third on a BID. Now I'll yell out one out, and we'll do, we'll do 10 reads with that. Now with, with one out, you're going to be a little more aggressive because we got to get to third with one out. And then at two outs, obviously you go back to that zero out mindset. You got to be 110%. You cannot be thrown out of third on a BID with two outs. So we, we do a lot of those situations. Um, you know, I get on the mound and I throw hard BIDs as hard as I can, you know, real live reads. Um, and so we do that at every base. So that's one thing we do at second. Uh, we talk about um, situations, deep fly balls. You're reading the outfielder's body language, reading his back. You know, with, with nobody out, we're going to um, we're going to extend, extend, extend um, with one out. You know, we're um, I'm sorry with OK, with zero outs, we're going to we're going to you're yeah, gonna back if you can yeah, and go Aaron. back if you can and, and get to third base. See, I've been I've been on a field in 13 months, so I got to go back. and. That's all right. That's why it's <laughs> I mean, yeah. a little refresher here. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's great. Um, and then with one out, we're going to extend, extend because you cannot. um you cannot not score if a ball lands yes. with one out. Yeah. But so, and anyway, so yeah, we, you know, we talk about every situation and you mentioned something to the classroom, you know, we do that in the fall as well. We get in the classroom early, um, get, get a big whiteboard and just diagram some stuff. And, you know, my, my biggest thing is um, I, I was taught this a long time ago and I, I've never seen it really taught this way again, but I, I think it's the best way to teach um, when you're as a base runner, when you're reading base coaches, Right. I too many times guys hit a ball in the gap and you see them running with their head just staring at the base coach. Okay. For me, it's, it, you're the, it's use your eyes, use your instincts, trust it. So what, what, I, but what I do is if you take a diamond, a baseball diamond, right. And say the ball is um, in the right center field fence. Okay. You just put, you know, you can do this on a chalkboard and, or a whiteboard, you draw a line, a straight line from home plate to that ball. Okay. So obviously as a runner, you're going to run across that imaginary line. Okay. It is your ball, your decision until you cross that imaginary line. Yeah. So the ball hitting the left center field gap, that's your, I mean, the entire time as a runner, that's your decision to go to third or not. You should never be coming to second base, staring at the third base coach on a ball down a left field line. One of the things that we spent a lot of time with, with the runner at second base, especially was following the ball with the pitcher out of the hand 
to get some early reads on on ball and dirt and re- trying to read ball flight out of the hand at first base also trying to get good at, at reading ball flight down out of the hand or picking up breaking ball out of the hand just to get a little bit better anticipation and then you know with our, our red runners then you know if you saw it kick to the third base side then you could go but with our green guys we we gave them some leeway to take some more chances Sure. Uh, just to sure. be more aggressive and-, and, and scouting reports come to play too, right? You know, you get scouting reports on teams ahead of time and, and tendency, we, we do a tendency chart in the dugout. And so we talk in the dugout by, by the third, fourth inning. Hey, listen guys, every one, two count, he's going slider in the dirt. Okay. You get on base one, two count. Let's go. You got to get that PID. There's no excuse. You know? how, how are you teaching leads at third? Uh, we do a walking lead. Uh, so what we do, if it's, if we're facing a righty and he's in the stretch, um, we do a, a check step with our left foot. Okay. So we can never get picked a third. So it's literally just a check step. And the reason we do that is when we do squeeze, we, we do the same thing. So it never gives it away. And, and, and when I say check step, it could just be a, a, like a little bit of a lean towards the bag on your, on your left foot. And then, and then do you, you face shot. many teams that picked a third? Um, there's been a couple, a couple Southern California teams in our conference have a back door to third base. Yeah. Yeah. They have a play. Uh, there's one team that every time there's a lefty hitting and we have a runner third, it's a, it's a um, mandatory pick the third on the pitch for the Mi- catcher. Missouri state was really good with their lefties of the step off arm fake to first and, and pick to third. They were really good at it. So we would practice all week on that just to be prepared. And you didn't see it a whole lot, but they, their guys were really good at it. Yeah, it, 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 it all it takes is one time, and you can lose a game. Yeah. One time doesn't I mean doesn't matter if they they don't do it a lot or not. But and you, you won't sleep for a week as a coach. That <laughs> and the the first and second are bases loaded, back pick to first with the lefty. Um, that happened one time in twenty two years, but it ended a game. Uh, my second year at at Western, uh, we were in a barn burner with Indiana State and Coach Hannes um, at Indiana State is one of the better coaches we have in the country and we had a freshman at first base and we hadn't really talked about it and he got into his secondary and got picked and we were out and head head to Louisville after that so one time but we hadn't really talked about it and um, so that was on me that we hadn't discussed it and he felt so bad uh, the freshman Um, you know, and good player was a good player. I'm like, Hey, this happens, but honestly it's on me because we really haven't worked on it. Yeah. I mean, that's accountability as a coach. We, uh, it happened to us, uh, at Riverside, my last year, coach Doug Smith, one of the best coaches on the West coast for many years and, uh, known as a hitting coach, you know, and, but he called it back door at first base bases loaded in the top of the ninth. We were, we, we had rallied to get to, to get within a run and we had a hot hitter at the plate and a two Oh count called a back door at first base and uh ended the ball game and i asked him afterwards or like a week later or something he's like it's like shit i there's no doubt in my mind you guys were going to win that game unless and that was the only play i had to to win to to help our team win that game he goes we could have thrown the ball down the right field line but it didn't matter because your guy was going to get a hit or we're going to walk him anyway so he it it teaches you take a chance in, in the game if you practice it and you trust it and Wichita, 31, bases loaded, 31 with the back pick to first base. We're really good at it. Obviously, the big leagues, it's it's gone now, but they yeah. were really good at it. It was a balk, 
but their righties were really good at balking because they would go past their 45. They would ar- they would arm swing early, go past the 45, so it looked like they were going to the plate, and then they back picked to, to first. They were really good at it. Well, too. Let me tell you a really good one. And the late great Mike uh, Gillespie, Coach Gillespie, uh, we went in there. Uh, we were a good team that year, very good team, and we had a. Uh, they were really good, and um, we had an, we had a great closer. And so on Friday night, he came in and. And I think, yeah, he, he loved to pitch from the windup with a runner on third. He did not want to pitch from the stretch, right? So, you know, we said, okay, you know, do what's comfortable, but make sure you look that runner back, you know? And so on Friday night, he comes in and, and I think we're up two to one in the ninth, bottom ninth and runner third, two outs. He's in the windup and he, you know, he punches the guy out to, to, win, to win the ball game. Come back Sunday, they, they win the Saturday game. We come back Sunday. We're in the exact same situation. Our closer on the mound, it's like the bottom of the 10th inning. We're, uh, it's a tie ball game at this point. Uh, we're trying to push a few extra innings, and, and uh, he's in the windup. He, he goes back with his left foot, and, and the runner third just darts home. And he speeds, up, he speeds up his windup to throw the pitch, and we tag him out. And our guys are celebrating, but I, I happen to look across the field at Coach Gillespie, and he's got his arms in the air because he knows that it's a balk. It's a balk, yep. And the rule is you cannot, yeah, you cannot yeah. speed up your, your windup. He told the team on Friday night after they lost, if that closer comes back in the game, we're going to, this is what we're going to do. Well, they, I mean, USC won the national championship on a, on a two strike steal of home, man. And that's, that's how good coach Gillespie was Yeah, because talk about free to fail. His, his teams were fearless because of all the small things that they would do. And that's, you won a national championship because you're willing to take a chance on a, on a steal of home with two strikes. Yeah. yeah he, he was amazing. Yeah. So speaking of history of the game, talk about your relationship with Augie Garrido a little bit. Yeah. Oh God. How blessed was I? I grew up watching him uh, in orange County, watching the full Titans, uh, you know, the Mark Kotze is the world, and those guys, Ben Silva, um, I mean, I'm sorry, Teddy Silva. I'm recruiting a guy named Ben Silva right now. Teddy Silva. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't know him back then, obviously. You know, I wasn't a uh, uh, big recruiter or anything in Orange County. So um, I just knew of him. And, and then um, Tommy Nicholson became his assistant at University of Texas. And I knew Tommy really well from his Sac State days. And so anyhow, I'm at San Francisco State. And uh, we, we do a banquet every year, first pitch banquet. And we have, we've had some great keynote speakers and I just kind of crossed my mind. What if I can get coach Garrido since he's in retirement and he's not in Texas anymore. And so I called Tommy and, and Tommy said, Hey, I'll put you in touch with him. Uh, he, coach Garrido invites me to lunch in a, in December or something in Newport beach. Uh, and it was one of the greatest lunches I've ever had. That was the second greatest lunch I ever had. Um, the first, the first, the greatest lunch was with him about three months later, but, uh, we spent about three hours. I just listened for two hours and 58 minutes of it. And uh, it was just unbelievable, the stories and the knowledge. And, and he agreed to come be our first pitch speaker. So he comes up and uh, he wants me to pick him up at the airport on a Friday. And I'm excited because I, you know, I want to take him to lunch. I'm going to take him a quick lunch and I'm going to take him to the field to watch. I'm going to show him how great the program is and how great a coach I am and all this stuff. And all he wants to do is go grab a, a good Italian lunch in the city. So we, <laughs> we end up having lunch for about three hours. I missed practice, but, uh, it was, um, I, I called my assistant coach and said, Hey, I, I probably can't make it today, but, uh, we, it was, it was an unbelievable experience. He came in the next day, he came and gave the, one of the greatest speeches I ever heard 
to our alumni and our parents and our players. He spent every minute after the speech signing autographs, taking pictures with every single family. And to this day, my players and my alums and my and my the family still talk about that night. He, he had this special quality that he just when he spoke to somebody, you felt like it was just you and him talking only. And you know, you, you talk to some people and their their mind somewhere else, and they're you know they're they're looking at their phone and it, but it, it, it not with he them. lived the present moment. I mean that yes. that was not fake. Yeah, I mean, that was not fake for Coach Garrido. He no. lived in the yes. present moment. He valued you as a human being in that moment you got with him, that time you were spending with him. And and I'll tell you that the, he spent he coached one year at San Francisco State, nineteen sixty nine, right? Uh, five of his players came to that banquet from the sixty nine team. And, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's rare. Come on. A guy coaches at a school for one year and is still a mentor to those men in their sixties, fifties and sixties. Yeah. The leadoff dinner is such a great event. Uh, we ran one at Iowa every year and then I, I carried that over into Western. Some of my best memories are from the leadoff dinners. I got to fly to pick up Tommy Lasorda one year when I was at Iowa cause he wouldn't fly commercial. So we had a player at the time whose dad was a higher up with Musco. So I took the Musco private jet to Midway to pick up Lasorda. And his handler was like, hey, he may sleep the whole time. He didn't. He talked the entire flight from Midway back to Iowa City. And he was on his A game from the start. But at Western, I mean, we had Al, Al Rabowski, Andy Bennis, Salfasano. We had some Evansville grads. But then Bobby Dernier... Gary Matthews Sr., Jack Clark, and they would all come in the day before, and I would take them out to dinner the night before the event. And they loved our event because, you know, a lot of those events, they've got to take a ton of pictures with people, and it's more of a PR thing. But ours, it was more like celebrating them, and they didn't really have to do a lot. So they loved to come in, in because they got dinner the night before. They got to hang out all day. And so it was really laid back, but just to, to listen to the stories of those guys and, you know, obviously the money now is way different for the big leaguers than it was for those guys. Some of these guys are still doing that stuff because they have to, uh, right. because they didn't make as much money back then. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you a quick Tommy Lasorda story. He spoke at a UC Davis banquet, uh, when I was, a, before I started coaching there. And uh, I was a Dodger, so we kind of had a history in the minor leagues. Uh, he'd come around to different organizations. And I came up to him at the event, and he was shocked to see me. You know, and, and so anyways, he starts off his – he goes up to speak, and he's like, all right, uh, you know, what a great event. Little did I know I'd see this, the Paisano, Shafano here. Um, Tony, where are you? And raise your hands. I'm like, hey, how you doing, guy? everybody? You know, there's like 500 people in the audience. And he goes, he goes you know – do you guys know why every Italian is named Tony? And I was like, oh, geez, I, I didn't know where he's going with this. And he, and he goes, I'm sure he's said this many, many times, but he goes, when, when, when they got on the boat and they were coming over to the uh, United States, they would stamp on their forehead to and why. <laughs> so, <laughs> Tommy, amazing. You know, yeah. Hey, yeah. for the never bunt crowd out there, what what do you have to say for somebody out there who's like, you should never bunt? Oh, gosh. Uh, <sighs> that's a good question. Um, because, I mean, how do you convince somebody that it's it could be a huge part of the game? Um, 
if they truly believe in, you know, what's going on today with just launch angle and all that stuff. And um, I would say this, <sighs> give yourself the opportunity to, um, to put yourself in a situation and put your players in a better situation to succeed. Cause that's what, we, that's our, that's our job as coaches. Every player needs to be put in a situation to succeed. Okay. Now as a coach, you don't have to bunt if you don't want to, but you have to, I, I believe you're not putting your team in the best situation to be prepared to win a baseball game if you don't know how to. And I'll leave it at that. And defensively, you and I have talked about that. I just thought our teams handled those situations better because that was part of our offense. So they got used to handling it in practice because Absolutely. we were doing it all the time. I just said, you know, and we would talk with our players. I'm like, hey, guys, you have to consider the source. So if, if somebody's telling you never to do something, I want you to look and see if they are actually getting paid for wins and losses. And so, and that's where I would leave it. I'm like, if this is a person that is, has been in a dugout that has tried to win a game late and they're telling you this, then maybe you can take some credence. But if this person has never either gotten a job or gotten fired because of wins and losses, then you probably got to take it with a grain of salt uh, that they're telling you, you should never bunt. Absolutely. And you know, the game of baseball is a game of momentum and you know, I put it in the presentation and you and I have talked about it many, many times. That momentum is 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 so underrated in the sense of what it can do to a team and and get it and just and bring a team together. And, you know, I think I put in there a couple double squeezes in the presentation where, you know, Irvine was in a super regional at Oregon State and they're double squeezing and and Oregon State was done after the double squeeze. Michigan broke Creighton's back in the super regional um, two years yeah. ago, broke their back. I think they did it twice. And the, ball, and the ball went 10 feet, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible. And, and like you said, it defensively gets you more prepared as a team to handle it. And then, uh, you know, and, and when I say, when we say pressure offense, it's not just bunting. It's, it's moving guys, getting guys in motion, putting the defense on their heels, making them have to make quick decisions. They're not used to making. Yeah. I loved being on the road recruiting with, again with guys that and and i'm good friends with guys that you coached against and they would sit there and be like we do not like playing against your teams because you have to prepare all week for the the myriad of things that might happen and you know as a coach that takes away from your opponent's time on doing what they're doing so i mean that's another benefit to it because teams then have to prepare i loved coaching against teams that didn't do anything that just like to hit back and and you know sit back and swing because you really didn't have much prep work that week to do during practice, but teams that did all the action stuff, you had to spend a lot of time in practice that week to do it. Well, you know that too. And the pressure it puts on you as a coach in the dugout, you know, you're constantly saying, okay, Hey, watch, watch motion here. You know, keep your position, hold your ground. Uh, what pitch should we call here? You know, things like that. It affects everything, but you're right, Ryan. If, if a team doesn't do much and they're just swinging out of their, out of their butts, I mean, you, you can just, you can expose each hitter to what their weakness is. And go at it. Talk a little bit about the bunt progression. Uh, you know, for somebody that didn't see the the clinic, and and again, May May twenty fourth, uh, all the videos released to members. So if you haven't seen Tony's uh, presentation, go watch it. He does a good job. But let's talk a little bit about the progression. I mean, you talked about top end, just top end catch to yeah. start. Um, yeah. Is that the best place to start for somebody that that maybe doesn't have feel for it? Is just catching the ball with their top hand? Yeah, and the reason being is you learn how to use your legs. So bunting is so important. Your legs are so important in bunting and, and your balance. And, you know, and, and you and I talked a little bit about, we can't, I don't think we should clone every bunner with, their, with where they put their feet. Um, you know, it's more of a comfortable position. I mean, there is a position I think is important to get into, 
But um, but it's the more most... with the barrel getting getting into a good position in fair territory, correct? It's not as much Absolutely. as the the feet help. Yeah, but but your barrel's got to get out into fair territory somewhere. Absolutely, you know, you look at lefty left-handed hit bunners. I mean, they're all different with their feet, their footwork. You know, some guys are open towards third base, some guys are closed towards second base. Um, whatever the, whatever they can get their their barrel in the position. But um, you know, the biggest thing I, I I learned early in my career when you're bunning is is up in the box. You know, you put yourself in a position to keep the ball in fair territory and get that curveball before or slider before it breaks. And then we would add in the top hand just with the barrel. I thought that was the the two best progressions to start with, catching yeah. the ball with your, your top hand, but then just adding in the bunt with the top hand because it, it taught them, one, where they needed to get their top hand on the bat to control it, yep. but then also keep their barrel from dipping too much below their hands. Absolutely. And we, we did a drill when I was with the Dodgers. Um, Coach Moda would do the drill with us where we were, we were trying to bunt the ball as close as we can to the end of the bat. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to have barrel control and under, and, and use your top hand. And um, it was it was a fantastic drill. I mean, it was it was challenging. But when, if you can bunt a ball at the near the end of the top of the bat, you can easily bunt a ball in the barrel. Any drills we didn't really get to in the in the presentation that you're using? I know it, you know forty minutes is tough to try to get everything in. Was there anything else that you missed that you didn't get to in there? Yeah, the only thing I wasn't able to explain was the at the end was the uh, I didn't have any video of it because we were on the field prior to uh, I would have shown it with the team is uh is the the bunt game that we play at the end of the at the end of a lot of practices probably two three times a, a week and it 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 encompasses everything defense base running bunting situations and you, what you do is you're putting the you're putting the bunt the bunt situation on the players so you don't really call it as a uh, as a coach during the bunt game so basically you know you start off with uh nobody on base um you got two teams and uh you're only allowed to bunt so obviously the what you're going to do in that situation as a leadoff hitter nobody on base you have two options you're going to drag or push right and so you know it, it gets them in the mindset okay what would i what would coach call here well, obviously, I can only you know you know push or drag here, and eventually guys get on base and and guys start moving around. You know, runner on second base, um, one out. Okay, we're not going to sack there, right? So inevitably, we always have a freshman that in the early in the, in the fall he'll he'll try to sack there, and we you know we'll stop practice. Say, listen, with one out, this is a situation where if if, if I am going to put a bun on, it's going to be a drag or push. You have to understand that we're not going to sack with one out and then the light bulb goes off and then the guy gets to third, you know, it's first and third one out. Okay. What situation can we run here? Safety squeeze, whatnot. So um, the third, the, the key to the drill is the corner guys cannot leave. Okay. You get them even with the bag. They cannot leave their position until the ball is actually bunted. And so what that is actually teaching, Ryan, I think this is the most valuable thing in bunting is you teach how important placement is. It's just, it's all about placement. Okay, it's not about the act of surprise. It's about getting your legs in a position to, to see the ball well, lay a good bunt down in place, and then run. And 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 they they are shocked that the third baseman's playing even with the bag, and still they're safe at first base. Because regardless of where they're at, that's still a tough play. If the ball's down the line, you're not going to see too many college third basemen that are athletic enough to be able to barehand that ball and get a good throw and, and get you in time at first base. 
Yeah. Yeah, now, Pat Burrell, he changed my mind on that in the Cape League. Um, I would lay down perfect bunts, and Pat Burrell would barehand it, and he'd throw me out by three steps. So um, what? that yeah. that was eye-opening for me when I went and played in the Cape because those push was still, though, I, like you could still push in the triangle. I don't care what anybody says. If you push the ball in the triangle every time, you're gonna, you'll are gonna you bat a 1,000 if you push the, the ball into the triangle every time. Especially against lefties. Yes. Absolutely. Especially yeah. against lefties. Yeah. Hey, I, with pregame then, with your BP rounds, how are you implementing, you know, the, the offensive pieces with your BP rounds? Absolutely. Yeah. So our first couple rounds are situational. You know, um, every group hits in the cage first. I want them loose, ready to go. Uh, we have a bunt city station, but once they're on the field, it's, it's all situational. Uh, we go uh, sack the first, sack the third, um, hit and run. Um, well, I call it, I say first and third hit and run here. Um, so if, wherever our runners are that day, they know what to do in the situation. Uh, we, we probably do two to three hit and runs. And then we end, and then we always end with a, a drag. Every We did too. Round. It was either a drag or a push bunt or a safety squeeze or a squeeze. So they were working on getting the ball down and then running to first base. Right. And then a hard 90 out of, yes. the, out of the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, no. And then, what about and, slash? Are you mixing slash in during rounds? Um, sometimes a few guys. Like, yeah, absolutely. There's a few guys that'll do it. And, and I, and I, and not everybody does the exact same rounds, Ryan. You know, my, my three hitter who's, you know, whatever is say that that particular year he's a 350 hitter with 10 bombs. You know, I'm probably not going to safety him. You know, let, let's be honest. You know, he's going to get to swing the bat in every in every RBI situation. So he'll get an extra couple swings instead of a safety um, here and there or, or squeeze. I probably won't squeeze him um, during the season. But uh, um, but I shouldn't say that. I mean, there's a chance I could. But <laughs> um, but it, it's not it's usually not something I'm looking for with him. But um, everybody has a little bit different, you know, like a couple guys just aren't comfortable pushing and they're not good at it. And so they're, you know, but they're great drag bunners. So, that, you know, they'll, you know, that's what they're, I'm probably going to call in the game and they'll focus that more of that on in BP. But, uh, you know, you, round three is usually, uh, I try to stay, try to keep everything from gap to gap approach. So through the, through, we use through the middle uh, mindset. We, we say L screen height. I like that the height of an L screen as a, as a um, trajectory of the baseball at the bat. And then um, the last couple of rounds, I let them swing a little bit. You know, it's fastball. I call it fastball ready rounds. You know, it's, you know, we're in a 2-0, 3-1 count, get your pitch. And then one thing been really successful is um, the last round, I, I asked them where they want it, right? So they'll say two in and two out. So now they're, they're deadly focused on, they're boxing up me right now to those two pitches or that location. So, um, and I'll throw, like, say a guy goes, I want two in coach and then two out. Well, I, he, he's, he's ready for, for a ball in. I'll throw it outside just to get him in the mindset of taking that pitch as opposed to rolling it over. So we got to where we would time the rounds. So usually about eight and a half to nine minutes per round. And then once they got through their situational stuff, we would go straight game of bats where it was game routine. They would tell us the situation. And if they put a ball in play, they were out and the next guy was in. It was amazing. We would probably get three or four or five game ready at bats. Cause our BP guy would mix then I thought that helped us get ready for games and get a little bit more of that competitive mindset uh, where you got the BP piece in, but then they were kind of getting into game mode there, competitive sure. mode, because one pitch, if they fouled it off, they stayed in, and so they'd play with the abat, and if they struck out, they were out. If they walked, they were out. 
just sure. to kind of get them in game mode a little bit when we needed it to just get the competitive juices going at times. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Ryan, I'm, I'm always learning and eager to, to find new drills and things. I'll tell you the one that I haven't really come to um, a, a strong conclusion on is the off speed. You know, I've had some coaches say they go around a six and the, the, you know, they'll go fastball, curveball, fastball, curveball, fastball, curveball to keep them on two different pitches. Um, then, then, you know, sometimes I'll see a coach do six straight curveballs or four curveballs in a row. Um, and then, the, and then like you, your situation where the coach doesn't tell them what's coming. It's yeah. Like, just, I felt like, okay, that's what we're going to have to do in a game is they don't know what's coming. So it just felt like it, it kind of helped them and also flush them at bats because sometimes it's hard. Your first at bat, if it's against the other pitcher, like you may not be in a groove yet. I thought it, it grooved our guys up for the game a little bit more at times. Yeah. I don't think you can do it all the time. And that's part of being a coach is you have to have field of, to figure out what your guys actually need on any given day. And they may need that that day, but then they may de- need a day of just five zone fastballs where they can feel good all day. A hundred percent. And um, you touched on a great thing I wanted to touch on Ryan is um is asking your players and getting a feel for what they what works for them you know because everybody's a little bit different and and ask i ask my players all the time do you like that drill we just did today you know how do you feel about it what, what were you feeling you know you know maybe it wasn't such a good feel for the whole team and we you know we bury it um but no that's key that's a it's a huge key and then the, another key is that first group you know i think i think most programs i'd say 90 percent of the programs in the country you put your freshmen or or red shirts in that first group, right? They were group four for us. Sorry, that okay. was that, that was group four or five. Um, okay. It was more for defense. Um, it was always our starting outfield because we would give them time to hit in the cage first. But it was usually our starting outfield, uh, and then our our starting infield would be out there. And then after group one, our starting infielders would go to the cage to get loose. It had more to do with with making sure that not all of our outfielders or infielders were, were playing defense at the same time. Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. And my, my point was going to be though, with that first group, if they do throw, unfortunately that first group, whoever it is, it could be outfielders, whoever it is, sometimes, you know, they don't get the cage work first. And if you can, as a coach, try to set up your time where they get actually get some swings first in the cage. Cause you know, you need that. Some guys need that, you know, instead of their first pitches from a coach from 40 feet away coming at you. I mean, how much did you need as a player? How, how much cage time did you need? I, I just needed a little bit. I just needed I to get, field, get loose. Yeah, I, I, wanted, I, needed, I needed probably um, five balls off the tee and six soft toss, and I was ready to go. If I hit five line drives in a row to the back of the cage off the tee, I moved on to something else. Yeah. I was like, my swing's there, and I, I didn't want to overdo it. Uh, if I felt like it was in tune and everything was good, I... I took way less swings than probably some guys did. But if, if I was striping the ball, I was like, okay, I'm there. I don't need to try to do any more than what I'm doing. We have that flexibility in our program on the field. It, you know, we've had some seniors last few years. Coach, you know, if I'm in the middle of a, a drive round at the end and I feel good after two swings, can I walk out? And I said, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. You're it. done. You're ready to go. Let's go. Hey, for anybody who hasn't spoken on on – I mean, I know it was virtual, but – how do you handle some of that excitement of giving that type of presentation? Oh gosh. Um, well, I felt blessed. First of all, I, what an opportunity. Um, and it, what I would tell somebody is um, it's an opportunity to kind of to set back and regroup a little bit too, and, and kind of evaluate how you do things. Um, you know, I went back to all my old notes from over the years. I talked to some old players, some old coaches. Hey, remember that drill we used to do it? 
know, things like here, that, and it kind of gives you, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, some, I mean, we haven't been on the field for 13 months, but when we get back on the field in the fall, um, you know, I'm going to be implementing a few new things that I put in that presentation that I hadn't used for a year or two. Absolutely. And you were dialed in on the Q and A's too. Like you, you know, we did those post Q and A's. You were in on some of the other speakers. Like you did a great job during the virtual of interacting in that space. I thought it was, um, you know, all things considered, I thought the virtual space was really good for our new coaches to be able to interact. Oh, absolutely. There was so much new information. And I know this is an old cliche. You're, you're, we're a life learner, but I mean, if, if you think you have it all figured out as a coach, you know, you, you're gonna you're gonna get passed up at some point. Yeah, um, speaking I, I, presenting is like working clinics or going to work somebody's camp, and and then having to present in a camp. Set. I I just think it makes you a better coach if you can get up and present or go work camps. It's gonna make you a much better coach. Absolutely. If if, if I was talking to a young coach right now, they would have to if they were doing a self evaluation. I'd say, okay, right now on the spot, tell me your philosophy as a coach. Yep. Okay, and then okay, boom. After you tell me your philosophy, tell me how you run a practice. Tell me, tell me what's your hitting philosophy then? What's your, you know, blah, 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 blah. I can go on and on, right? But as a coach, you got to be prepared. You got to know because the, if you're not prepared, the kids will see through you. Okay. And because they, they want to be, they want to be taught. They want to, they want structure and they, they want to get better. And that's our responsibility as coaches. Is your fail forward moment uh, when you, when you didn't do well on your on-campus interview? Is that your fail forward moment or do you have a different one? Um, that, that was pretty fail forward. Absolutely. Um, on the field. Um, oh gosh. Um, I had one on the field as a coach, uh, at UC Davis. I, um, it, it was, it was an eye opening experience for me. It was a young man that I had coached in high school and I had coached all his younger brothers in little league. I was, I was basically a big brother to, to him. And he was a heck of a ball player. And we were playing on a Tuesday. The wind was blowing out and Davis. It happens every now and then. It's going to be 15 to 12 to score no matter what. And anyways, long story short, you know, I was frustrated that we were giving up, we were giving up runs and whatnot. Anyways, he he struck out looking on a fastball. And that's something we talk, I talk about my hitters a lot. You're going to strike out looking, but you should never strike out on a fastball middle way, because that's what we're zoned in on with two strikes. That just means you're guessing at that point. Um, and I'm coming, he is a third, it was a third out. So he's going to third base and I'm coming across the field and I gave him an earful, you know, as I'm walking past him. And I guess he was waiting the whole half inning to come back in the dugout and return the earful to me. And we had that relationship, but, but it was, it was, but it was more of him saying that is not the right time to blow a player up. Yeah, you embarrassed me. And um, it, it was it was it was a moment where I, I sat back that night. And I went, he's 100 percent right. I was right about the situation, but I was completely wrong. This young man's going to go play defense now and I'm blowing him up. And and we because we teach we talk as coaches, separate your defense from your offense. Right. And here I am putting, you know, just wearing him out and he's going to go play defense and help us try to help his pitcher. And ever since that moment, I, I have tried to separate and know, try to figure out the, the right time to, to address certain situations. And, and maybe it's in a, you know, the dugout after two innings later, bring a guy up to the, you know, Hey, in that situation, make sure you're next at bat. You know, you're, you're, you're we're sitting fastball middle way. How are you able to pause 
I mean, I think that we all go through that as coaches because you want what's best for them. And sometimes it does not come across right because you're so passionate and you want to win. How how do you pause maybe and 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 maybe redirect where okay I got to wait until he comes back where we can talk about this right it's hard it's difficult at times but you have to understand that um, that there's new situations that you you're you're a head coach and you and you have to be uh, in charge of you know it's a new inning starting in that situation I got to be aware of the pitch count for my starting pitcher where are we at in the bullpen where are they at in the lineup there's so many other responsibilities that. What I do, Ryan, is I write, I keep notes during the game, like most coaches, you know, your ABs, your, your quality plate appearance and all that. And I, but I have a little section for notes and I'll write a little note. Okay. Hey, talk to Paulie in the, you know, before his next at bat about this situation. And so as he's coming up, I'll see it and go, okay, Paulie, come here. And yeah, so, you know, you pick out little situations. Um, you know, um, sometimes I'll, what I'll do is I'll bring, say, say he's an older guy and he's made a mistake and I'll bring a younger guy over with me that plays his position. And so it's a conversation where it's a teaching moment for, for the young player too. When are you addressing then notes with the whole team? Are you doing it right after the game or are you doing it at a different time? I do. I do it after the game. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you this, it used to be a laundry list of things. And I I've learned that guys, guys zone out after about two, three things. So now I'll, I'll, I'll write all my notes, but then, you know, after the game, I'll, as the guys are clean the field or something, whatever the situation is, I'll, I'll pick out two or three that I think are the most helpful. And I might save one for the next day for the talk before the game. So, you know, say it's a running situation off a pitcher at second base. So, Hey guys, you know, we get in a situation uh, later in the game today, not tomorrow. Yeah. What type of morning or evening routines do you have that you feel like help for the team or myself for you? For myself, um, morning routines is I get up I get up super early on game day, and I go for a run, uh, clear my mind, think about the, the game before you know, think about how what we're gonna do in BP that day, um, think about our bullpen who's available, um, and then um, usually breakfast with my pitching coach. I like spending time with him and talking about strategy, and he's he's got a great mind for the game, and um, and then I get to the field early. I, I love. I love being there. I was as a player, I was always there first and I still do that as a, I try as a coach. Um, there's time. I loved getting take. there early. Yeah. I loved being there in the morning. I loved water in the field. I, I still yeah, did it. You know, I continued to do it. Um, one of my assistants, I want to take a little bit off their plate at times too. So I, I did quite a bit of field work, yeah. uh, just because I wanted to take a little bit off their plate also. Yeah. One thing I do, it's weird. And my, and Cameron will tell you this, our pitching coach, he always thought he, in the beginning, the first year with me, he went, he was too nervous. So he wouldn't say anything, but as he's gotten more comfortable, he's like, why do you do that? But I always go clean the other dugout, the visitors dugout. I don't know what it is. I take a wet, wet rag over there, broom. And I, I want that. I want it clean for them. You know, I don't know what it, what it is. It's, I don't know where that came from. It's something, nothing that anybody taught me. I just, I just do it. And um, I don't know. I think it's a respectful thing. I respect the other team, the other coach and, you know, not that I wanted to be comfortable ever over there, but, but you know, yeah. what about decompressing after the game? I mean, I would, how, how are you able to kind of let it go? Mine was the shower and then cleaning my hmm. shoes. I always, I took that as a player. My dad was a, a Marine. So, I mean, I, I was polishing my shoes as a little kid just because my dad wanted us to do that. And it, I, it's still something I do to this day, but that was always my decompress is once I got done with the shower and, and washed my shoes, and clean my shoes. I, that was it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's excellent. I like that. Um, 
I, you know, my biggest thing is uh, I've had amazing family support over the years when I was a player and now as a coach. And the first first phone call I make when I get in the, in the truck is my parents because they watch all the games. And uh, I think that, that that definitely helps me. And, and sometimes I'll vent and they're great listeners, you know, and um, I'm accountable for mistakes in the game. And, you know, you know, parents, they, they always see the, the bright side of things and, you know, and, and they're usually right. You know, I just try to relax and chill a little bit. I usually baseball tonight or sports centers on um i have a tough time uh watching a movie or something i you know the mind's racing for the next day but um yeah usually it's you know get a good dinner watch watch some sports center uh, i'm a big office guy i love the office i'll probably say if there is a show that i watch i've seen the same show probably 400 times is the office <laughs> <laughs> what are some final thoughts oh gosh um i i just i've I, again, I feel blessed to have this relationship with you, Ryan, and ABCA. Um, you know, all every coach out there, all young coaches, because every year there's, there's, I don't know what the number is, but there's probably close to a thousand or even, I'll just say the hundreds of new coaches every single year, every single level. Um, take advantage of the ABCA. There is so much knowledge on your website. I, I, I One thing I do, Ryan, I honestly, I'm not BSing anybody here, is I get on the site and I go through old videos from six, seven, eight years ago. I, I look at the names of the coaches and I'll, I'll go back and watch the Darren Erstad outfield one presentation now seven, eight years ago, over and over. And, um, it, it's just a reminder of things that, cause I think we get so busy and so stuck in our, in our schedule that we forget little things that could help the kids grow. And um, I think that's the best thing we've done for the organization is yeah. you get all of the videos now I, that I think I think that's a gift to the coaching community is that you, with the membership, you get all of our videos now. It's, it's a gift. Yeah. And, and what I've, what I've learned over the years too is and for, in my first few years coaching, I was too nervous to reach out to other coaches, but 99% of the coaches out there that are part of the ABCA will, will respond to you and will will love to, to meet you and share knowledge with you. Reach out to them. Tony, I can't thank you enough. Oh, you bet, man. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks, Ray. Huge thank you to Coach Fano for jumping on with me. I hope this is a blueprint for you to start mixing in some of the finer points of pressure and situational offense. It will definitely help you win games, especially against the better arms you're going to face. There are some days where your teams may not hit, but you can still score a bunch of runs. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABC office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter, Coach B underscore ABCA, Instagram, Ryan Brownlee 17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.